Father, we thank you for tonight as we are just heading back into the series in Revelation that you would just open our minds to um, all the things that you have for us, that we would just be open and we would be obedient to just be committed to learning and to understanding you more as you reveal yourself uh, through the next couple minutes here. So Father, we thank you. We love you. Just want to pray. Amen. All right. Uh, today, we are in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're going to crank out two chapters. And if you're new with us today, we are going through a series in the last book of the Bible, which is like, for everyone, this very, very scary book. And we're trying to, as much as we can, go over all that uh, this kind of pertains and has inside of it so that we could have a greater and a more foundational understanding of Jesus. So, in two and three, what John is going to do is he's going to write seven letters to seven churches. Now, the very first day that we did this series in Revelation, we, we figured out what seven was, right? Um, in the beginning of all things in Genesis, he says right off the bat that God creates everything, created all in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. On that seventh day, he rested, and that whole idea is completeness, it's, it's, it's a, a fullness. So it's not really about seven churches as much as it is about all churches in all time. It's the full amount of churches. And so it's basically going to talk about everything that we go through. Everything that all churches in all time have ever gone through is in these seven letters. And this is what it contains. It contains a commendation. So like a really nice thing that Jesus says about these churches, except to one. He has a rebuke. So he calls out five of these churches and not two of them. He has an, ex, uh, an encouraging message to them. Uh, he has an exhortation to all of those who basically heed to the promise that he has for them. Seven churches, seven different experiences, seven different ways that Jesus communicates to them. And that's very, very, very important for us to understand. So as we go into this, uh, let's, uh, let's read and figure out what's kind of going on. Revelation chapter 2, verse one, to the angel of the church, to the angel of the church. This exact line, to the angel of the church, is going to happen seven different times. It happens in verse 1, verse 8, verse 12, verse 18, and then chapter 3, 1, 7, and 14. He goes and he talks to all of these churches and he says, to that church, that specific community, that, that individual group. And he treats them all very differently. There is no like one size fits all with Jesus. It's a differentiated message per individual, right? The Bible is full of this kind of stuff. There are two guys who ask Jesus the, or who ask God the exact same question and they get completely different answers back, right? This is a guy named Job, or if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, Job and uh, Job and this guy named uh, Habakkuk both ask God the exact same question. They both go, God, you told me this is going to happen. Why is this going to occur? And they question God. And to Habakkuk, God is so nice. And he's careful. And he's tender with him. And he's just like so calm. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Trust me. Like he's so nice. And then when it gets to Job, Job asks the exact same question. And God says, who are you to question me? And no word of a lie. He says, put a jock on because it's about to go down. And then for like 40 chapters, God reams this dude out. And it's amazing. And all of a sudden you sit there and you go, man, 
This is crazy. They asked the exact same question, and yet God, in some kind of a way, wanted to tell them very different things, even though they were in the same place. This is how this kind of works out in the same way. There's all these seven churches. They're all having different scenarios, all under the umbrella of hardship and trial, but Jesus wants to send them specific messages because that's how intentional he is to these churches, churches. Um, we all know that this is not written originally in English. This is written in Greek, the letter of Revelation. And the word that John uses for this word church is this word ekklesia. There's like a little slide for it. And uh, that's how it's spelled, ekklesia, okay? That is how we would translate church. But what's really interesting is that when you look at the Bible, there's so many other great words to talk about a gathering of religious individuals, right? He said you could have gone to the temple, you could have gone to the synagogue, but he uses this word, which is really, really weird because this word has nothing to do with religion or spirituality or any of those things. What this idea has, these gatherings, what it is, is it essentially means like a city council meeting. It essentially means people coming together to fulfill and do the basic needs of the kingdom. So if you are a Roman and you were doing an ecclesia, you're having this council meeting, all the people are coming together, and you're figuring out what are the basic needs that the kingdom has to have fulfilled. And then I thought about this, and I go, that's such a beautiful picture of what, of what church is supposed to be. That we as individuals come together, not just for uh, con the consumerism of it, not just so we can mosh and jump and have fun, and not to kind of like this entertainment kind of stuff. It's that we would come together, that we would fulfill the basic needs of God's kingdom here on earth. Like, look at the way that we operate in life. Look at the different things that we do. Look at the way that we interact with one another. It's so much about what can I get out of this? What can I get out of this? Not so much what I can give. Think about this definition. People coming together to fulfill the basic needs of what God wants to do in this city. How different would this be? We have these modern churches who do things very, very different ways. And you know what? One of the scariest thoughts that came into my mind this week as I'm studying all this and I'm looking at it and I'm going, this is interesting. It's because if I look at this definition of church that John has, and I look at our modern way of doing church, I think it's very scary that if Jesus showed up today, we would have to teach him how to go to church. If Jesus showed up today, we would actually have to teach him how to do church. Because it doesn't really seem like the way that he is trying to express it here. The way that we work, the way that we roll, the way that we as human beings in society live is very different from this time. We are very kind of distant, cold people, right? I remember when I was in 10th grade, I went to Italy. Um, Italy is crazy, okay? They're all psychos over there. They, they have these massive, massive, massive buses and the tiniest roads in the history of life. And yet they gun it, right? And all you have is this kind of like overweight driver with a gnarly mustache. And you're like, I don't trust you. And he goes, well, you better. And he's just ripping it, right? In and out of these streets. And you're like terrified the whole way through. But somehow you're like, I have confidence in you because you look like you got it together. Anyways, and you go through all of this stuff, and this it's this crazy place with all these differences in the way that we begin to operate. Like, when you go and you meet someone, they kiss you, right? Like, not on the lips, but they give you, like, the, like, the bop, bop, right? They give you the double tap, bop, bop, and all, everyone does it. 
right? You're like four years old. They're giving you the bop, bop. They're 80 years old. They're giving you the bop, bop. Guy on guy, bop, bops happens, right? You're like, this is like a very friendly kind of place, this Italy, right? Gelato is amazing and the bop, bops, right? That's kind of what they're about. And you go there and you show up to all of these places and you're like, man, everyone's so friendly. Everyone's like very much so like likes that you're here. And then I thought to myself, that's weird that that's weird. Like I remember going back to Honduras, right? A very, very different country, other side of the world. And I would go there and I would meet people on the street and immediately they would look to me and go, hey, do you want to come in for dinner? I'm like, what in the world? This is the strangest and then I sat back and I was like, why is that strange? Why is that a weird thing to me that people just want to hang out and talk and be people? And it's because of the culture that we live in. We do not operate with trust off the bat and acceptance and invitation like other countries do and other places do. We operate in a very different way. Right? If we walk into a Starbucks, immediately our first thought is every stranger in the room is distrust. It's there's something sketchy about you, okay? You with the hat, sketchiness. And we operate on this default of distrust. Everyone to us is an enemy, right? I remember one time when I was like five years old, I went into this mall and it was me and my cousin, my, my mom and my uncle. And we were all going there and my cousin uh, said, let's go to the pet store. And I was obsessed with dogs. So I go into the pet store and I'm like staring at this dog, right? It's staring at me. I'm staring at it. It's like an emotional connection. And we're sitting there and I'm like lost in this dog's eyes. And my cousin takes off and I don't even notice. And I go, what the heck? I'm five years old. Why did this guy abandon me, right? After that moment when he takes off and I walk back into the mall trying to find everyone who is obviously does not care about me, I walk around and my natural thought is everyone is an enemy, right? That old man right there is going to try to kidnap me. I'm going to go over here, right? My automatic default was just fear. It was, it was being timid and it was distance. And that seems like a kind of one-off weird scenario until you realize we do that all the time. It's a default into which we live. It's a very, very different way. The way that we operate is kind of explained this way. In a social order where distrust is primary, we can only rely on abundance and technology to be a substitute for cooperation and community. The way that we operate is not so much like, hey, let's hang out, let's be friends, let's be community, let's be a family. It's the way that we operate is, oh, I don't really need you if I just get more stuff and I use the technology available for me. I don't have to have a conversation with you if I can just like your photo. I don't have to have a conversation with you if I can just message you in a text. Right? How awkward is it sometimes when somebody tries to phone you and you get this crazy worry of like, oh my gosh, like talking to a human on the phone. No, that's not my life. And you just let it go and then you text them. Hey man, what's up? What? What is that? Happens to us all the time. Because secretly, we actually do have this fear of relationship and, and intimacy with people. But yet, this is what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be community. It's supposed to be family. It's supposed to be like these different churches. It's differentiated people in different places, loving and caring for one another. And it seems like we don't really got that all together. 
We as the church, we as this youth ministry are a people of story. We are a storied people, right? There's this idea of the gospel. The gospel is that we are broken in need of saving. And Jesus comes with a perfect life. He comes to earth and dies on a cross, is resurrected from the grave, and then takes us into victory with him. It's the gospel. It's this story. And that story runs our whole life. That idea runs our whole life. We are a storied people. In essence, if you want to break down all of what the gospel is, it essentially has this idea of freedom. So you're trying to be free, right? Paul talks about all the time, you are a slave to sin. You are constantly doing things that you don't want to do. And the things that you do want to do, you don't do. And he's like talking about this weird, strange relationship. And what Jesus grants to all of us when we say, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why did I think that? Why am I constantly stuck in this place in my life? Is that Jesus is offering freedom. Freedom. Last year, I went to um, Haiti. Haiti is the craziest place you'll ever go. It's, it's so messed up. You go there and you talk to people and they go, okay, yeah, the island is basically... Uh, like 60, 60% Catholic, 40% Protestant, 100% voodoo. And you're like, what? What does that even mean? And then you walk around, and they have this thing called No Pants Fridays, and you're like, what is that? It can't be. It can't be No Pants Fridays? It's like casual Fridays? Is it the same thing? What's happening? And you're walking on a Friday, and you go, Whoa! No, they take that seriously. I'm going back home, right? And all of a sudden, you're like, what is this place? This is crazy. Haiti has fake money, right? They created their own currency, which doesn't actually exist. It's just kind of like an imaginary thing that they created there. And so whenever you go and you order like a Sprite or something from the convenience store, you're like, hey, how much is this? Is this like seven and like their currency is the, the goods? And they go, it'll be a, it'll be one Haitian dollar. I go, sir, a Haitian dollar doesn't exist. What? The whole place is crazy town. I'm sitting there and during the political election, the government turned the internet off. Imagine if one day Trudeau was just like, I'm done with this, no more, and just turned off the Wi-Fi. Rebellion, right? We would all revolt. We'd go down to the city hall and we'd go with pitchforks and we're burning stuff. We're like, we need the gram, right? Every single one of us is doing that. And yet that's what happens there. And the reason why that whole thing is crazy, why that whole place is so much more wonky than anywhere else is because it's the only country in the world that has a lasting rebellion. There was a revolution in that country and the revolution won. And then they forgot one basic idea, which is I think what we also need to remember in this whole idea of chasing freedom. Freedom. We're all after freedom in one way or another. Freedom from sin or from past relationships or the way that we think about ourselves. Freedom is this idea that we are always trying to chase after. This is a guy named Stanley Hauervas, and he says this in, in such a, a crazy way of thinking about it. And it really, really got me to think. He says this. We have made freedom of the individual an end in itself. 
and have ignored the fact that most of us do not have the slightest idea of what we should do with that freedom. We spend so much time chasing after the idea of freedom, and then we get it. And then we have no idea what to do with it. Confused. We're, we're like, we've been, we've been searching for this thing over and over and over again, and we've desperately wanted it, and then we got it, and then now it's kind of like confusion. We don't really know what's kind of going on. This is very, very clear when it comes to Christians. Seeking after freedom to be taken away from the sins of their life, and then Jesus grants you redemption, and then you kind of go like, well, what, what now? And what Jesus does at this moment is when he's talking in these two chapters to these churches, he rebukes them. He calls them out. And the reason why he calls them out is because they've forgotten about why they have the freedom that they do. And they go into a bunch of really, really gnarly stuff. But the, the way that he does it is so important. Okay, I'm going to nerd out for like 10 seconds. And by 10 seconds, I'm be like 10 minutes, okay? Um, I remember being young, and there's some of you in this room who are straight-up closet anime nerds, okay? You know you're here. You look to the friend next to you because now you're embarrassed and you're getting a bit sweaty. There's some of you who are here. Let me just be honest with you. I was one of you, okay? I was in elementary school collecting Pokemon cards. I was playing Beyblade with, like, the the shock stuff. Every I was killing the game, okay? And one of the things that I was obsessed with was this, like, it was Dragon Ball Z, okay? Me and my younger cousin were obsessed with Dragon Ball Z. And there was this one episode I remember where the greatest thing happened. There was two young guys and they said, we need to fight that enemy. So what we're going to do is we're going to fuse. And they had like a dance, right? So they did this thing and they connected fingers and then they became one person. And I was like, yo, that's dope, right? So every single time me and my cousin would go out in the public, uh, we would always anime fight. Okay. This is just me being real. Anime is a weird thing, right? I think sometimes these people just let their minds go blank and whatever comes out, it becomes an attack, right? You're just like a uh, flaming bird of death, fire, attack, right? And then everyone, everyone who's like 10 or younger goes, that's awesome. That's, that's legit. I love that. And so we'd be running around in these malls and we'd be yelling out like, uh, dark, uh, panda slap, right? And he goes, oh no, like you didn't get me because I have a shield on. And I'm like, what? All right, good move, right? And we just go, and we would have this kind of like, we would we would do this all the time, and my uncle was just so mad because we'd sit there and we'd be in like the food court, like, like trying to fuse. And it was so stupid. But fusion in itself is like this weird, interesting concept, right? It's it's taking two things, putting them together to make something that is greater. Taking two different ideas or two different people or whatever, two different things, you're putting them together to make something greater. The way that Jesus goes and talks to these churches in a very strange connection is kind of like a fusion. The way that Jesus goes and he talks to all of these churches, he says in a way that fuses two completely different ideas together to make a more grand point. The way that he writes every single one of these letters is the same way that a Roman emperor would write a letter to his kingdom. He would write it the exact same way. He wrote this the exact same way as a Roman emperor would talk to his kingdom. So on one side, if you are a Roman individual in any of these churches, you get this sense of, no, I am the true emperor. I am the true emperor. It's very countercultural. 
And then within each of those letters, he uses this term. Um, in the Old Testament, when you have these prophets and the prophets are speaking on behalf of God, they would say, God says, and then they would say, whatever. That's the exact same language used here in these letters. It's this, the Lord says blank to him who has the words. It's the same, it's the same language as the way that God would speak to his people in the Old Testament. And now you have these two opinions. He's speaking as if he's God, and he's writing as if he's the emperor. It's like both of these ideas for two different groups is now coming together for a greater point, where Jesus is saying to everyone, listen, if, you're, if you want to hear from the emperor, I am the true king. If you want to hear from God himself, listen, I am right here. Listen to my words. The way that he approaches, the way to talk to us, changes us. Because of the way that we see Jesus, we see him as this fluffy-haired, oh, look at him, like the hippie going to Woodstock, and like, that's the way we see Jesus. Like, everything's about hugs. He just is, oh, he's just my friend. Just loves me. We don't get this side of this. We don't get this side where he's saying, no, 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 no. It's like you think if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a choice whether to listen to me. I'm Lord. I'm emperor. I'm, I'm God in flesh. Listen. When I say something, let's go ahead and do it. It's like if a king was over you and they said, hey, can you go over and get some bread for me? And you went, no. The king goes, are you serious right now? All right, if you don't want to obey, boom. They have ultimate authority. They have ultimate call on what it is that he called. Like he's saying to us, listen, this is how it is. Listen to my words. Listen to the things I'm talking about. And this is the way that he wants to say it. It's not some rebuke or call out from some random pastor or even from me. This is God in flesh saying to these communities, to these families and saying, listen, you've got some stuff that's awesome. And then you have other things. And those are the things you really got to fix. You really have to go and figure them out. So these are the, these are the list of the ideas that he rebukes these churches about. They forgot their first love. They hold false teachings. They tolerate evil people. They are dead on the inside, and they are lukewarm. So five churches, these are the five rebukes. And if you really sum up all of those rebukes, it kind of comes in two different ways. One is compromise. A church is supposed to be a set-apart and a very different group of people than what you see in the world. They're supposed to be different and yet the reason why Jesus is so upset is because we compromise all the time, right? Uh, who, who's already crushed Stranger Things, right? How many of us? Pray for you. I'll pray for you. I did it also. Anyways, uh, in one of the episodes, the police officer is talking with uh, Jack Waterton, and they're sitting down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, so the police officer is uh, talking to Eleven, and they're kind of sitting down, and he says the word compromise, and she goes, what's what's compromise? And then he says in this, like, so cute kind of moment, right? He goes, um, it's kind of like halfway being happy. It's like halfway being happy. You, know, you kind of meet in the middle. It's halfway being happy. And I started really thinking about this. Church and culture, compromise, and halfway being happy. 
right? For these guys, it was, uh, this is where the church should be and how they should behave and who should they worship. And then this is kind of culture. And he goes, every single time you compromise, it's kind of like being halfway happy. So you forget your first love and you love the things of the world. It's kind of like being halfway happy. And then you hold like really, really horrible teaching that the church shouldn't hold. And it's kind of like being halfway happy. And then you begin to tolerate things that you shouldn't really tolerate. And it's kind of like being halfway happy. And then all of a sudden you go and you look at yourself and you go, you're, you're pretty like, you're not, you're not out there. You're not driven. You're not on fire for this. You're kind of lackadaisical. You're kind of lazy when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. And that's kind of how everyone else is. And so you begin to be more halfway happy. And at the end of all of those compromises, if this is what Jesus goes and looks like, and this is the way that he wants us to be, who do we actually end up looking more like? That's his main rebuke of these churches. And we would say to ourselves, yeah, that's them, but that's not us. No, it's very, very interesting how often we begin to be so numb to the stuff around us. If you go to a public school and you walk into class and you hear swearing all the time, it probably doesn't really affect you anymore. You're kind of numb to it. It's like, whatever. Or what about the idea of materialism? That you are obsessed with the idea of having the newest thing, just like everybody else is. My phone is too outdated. I don't have so-and-so thing. And all of a sudden, this materialism also happens to us in the church. We need more of something to be more significant. What is that? It's kind of like being halfway happy. And then we have different ideas. Maybe it's ways that we should be acting, okay? High school, for you guys, what's the most prevalent thing? Let's talk about drinking for a second. Drinking, which is flat out illegal for this age. And what do we go and do? In our minds, we go, well, everybody does it. Why is it that much of a problem? And we justify. And we compromise. And it's like being halfway happy. And you justify and you talk through all of the different things. Maybe it's the, the boundaries that you've crossed with somebody of the opposite sex or all of these different things. I'm, a sh I'm telling you right now, pretty sure there's compromise in the room. And the more and more you are okay with being halfway happy, you end up looking like something completely different than Jesus. It's compromise. Halfway happy leads you not to look anything like what he wants you to look like. It's a crazy way for us to think about this. Now, if all of these churches represent the different times, there should be one of these that most represent us. Now, when I look at our culture, this kind of sucks. Because the church that most represents us is the one that Jesus has nothing good to say about which is kind of crummy. But look at what he says. I want you to hear this and really, really feel the language. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were... Would, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm in the middle and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The most common description of us is that church in Laodicea. You're not hot, you're not cold, and when you first hear that, you would go, okay, hot probably sounds like the good one, cold probably seems like the bad one, and now we're kind of in the middle. No, 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 that's not what it is. Laodicea is found in, in Turkey, and it's in between two different cities. There's Heropolis and Colossae. In Heropolis, they were known for their beautiful, beautiful hot springs. Very hot uh, water that you would go, and you would go to those hot springs to, uh, you know, heal you had sores and you had aches and you had pains, you would go to the hot springs and you would, re- you would be relieved of this pain. You'd be healed because of this hot water. And then you, you go to Colossae and Colossae had the most beautiful wells and springs and their water was perfect. It was ice cold and you'd go and, and, and this one's refreshing. It's, it's, oh, you imagine you go running and you need a, a cold drink of water. You get it. It feels like a million bucks, right? That's Colossae. Here you have hot water that's meant for healing. And here you have cold water that's meant for refreshment. And then he says, but Laodicea is in the middle. They're not hot and they're not good. This is, this is useful and it means something. This is useful and it means something, but you get the, the mixture of the two. You don't offer anything. You're not like really good for something. It should hit us because we're like, okay, we're not really good for, like, what does that mean? Why are we not good for something? Like, why would he say that to us? Why is this so much like us? Laodicea got hit by an earthquake that toppled the whole city. The Romans wanted to go in and they wanted to repair the city. And the Laodiceans told the Romans, nah, 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 we got it. The people in Laodicea were so ballin' that they remade the whole city off of their own finances. That's how, that's how rich they were. They were so rich. Look at this instance. They were so healthy. They were so comfortable. They had so much of what they actually needed. They refused the help of the people who were there to help them. And the church is the exact same way. You are so rich. You are so healthy. You're so comfortable. There's no problems with you that you refuse the help of the God who is after you. That's why Laodicea is like us. How often have I sat down with a youth who goes, why do I need God? Everything's working out for me. Why do I need him? I have awesome family. I have a great house. I have all of these things. And I go, you're missing the point. And at times, we think the worst thing that God can do to us is take everything away. He's going to take my house away. He's going to take my wife away. He's going to take all my money away. Everything is going to be stolen from me. That's the worst thing God can do to me. I don't think so. I think the worst thing that God could ever do to you is make you healthy, wealthy, 
and comfortable to the point where you think you don't need anyone else but yourself. Haven't you realized that all of your life has been teaching you one idea, one single thought, one single thing? It's dependence. You cannot do it by yourself. That's all of what your life has taught you. When you come out of the womb, you as a baby, can you do it on your own? No. Very obvious to us, from day one, we need help. You need something outside of yourself to fulfill what it is that you have to do. Everything is a gift. Think of the air that is filling your lungs. What if that was robbed from you? Can you keep going? No. You are dependent on so many things around you, so many people around you, so that you could still have life, and you think you could do it on your own. It's the worst place we could be to think that we don't need the people around us. No, I got it. I got it. I have it all figured out. And for then you to go and look at yourself and to honestly try to convince yourself that you're not pretty messed up. No, you're pretty messed up. Just think if I recorded every thought in a book of what you had today, every thought that you had today, you know what, every thought that you've had for the last week, it was all recorded in a book, and that book was given to me. How many of you are not embarrassed to share that? Probably a lot of us. And yet we come across going, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm all good. It's dependence. The reason why we are most like this church is because we are wealthy, we are healthy, we are comfortable. We are in the top 1% of the world if you are in this room right now. And our tendency is not to go and, and worship and give everything to Jesus. It's, no, no, we got it. We're fine. I'll come to you when I think about it. We're not hot. We're not cold. Kind of useless. It's crazy for us to kind of hear stuff like that. It's very strong language that Jesus is trying to say to us. And this is all to say this. We can look at that and we can say to him, you know what, you have no idea what it's like to be in my shoes, to be in the place that I'm in. Why are you, Jesus, someone kind of looking like you're on the outside looking in and you're critiquing us for how hard life really is? I'm not trying to diminish the idea that there are hard things happening in this room, there are. But I also can't let you leave here thinking that Jesus is this outsider calling you out and has nothing to do with your present situation. When Mariah came up here and read, she read something that was incredibly beautiful. In chapter 1, it has this whole idea of these seven churches. In verse 12, it says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. And then he goes that those seven lampstands is just a weird metaphor and imagery for the churches. 
So when John turns around, where does he find Jesus? Does he find him as an outsider, looking in, critiquing us? No. He finds him right in the middle, present, with. He is not an outsider looking in. He is an insider trying to make everything better. And he has on the cross. He is not rebuking you. He is not calling you out because he doesn't love you. He's calling us out because he says, don't you already realize I've given you freedom? Now let me teach you what to do with it. That's why these seven letters are here. You in the room have been granted freedom. Now let him teach you what to do with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as this text would just be able to kind of sit in our hearts. And as we go and we look at it, we wouldn't be just so susceptible to compromise and to kind of letting things go that we actually, if we do so much compromise over and over and over again, we stop actually looking like Jesus and we look like something completely different. That we would be aware of those things that we're kind of just giving into because, you know, we're so used to it. Everyone around me is swearing and, and treating other people horribly. That's whatever. Everyone else is doing it. I'll do the same thing. Or everyone else is constantly saying negative things around people. And that's just kind of the culture. It's just this negative talk and conversation and beating people down. And well, everyone else is doing it. And so we kind of fall into the same thing. God, allow us to realize the stuff that we're in and allow us to be different. Not just to think and justify our mind by going, well, everyone else is doing it, but, but actually thinking what it is, what, what is it that you would do in this, in this place? If you were standing right next to me, how would you operate in this context? that we would begin to understand how much you're actually calling us for and that we would actually realize what it is to have freedom and allow you to just sit there and obediently teach us what it is to have the freedom that we have. So in all these things, we are just humbled and we are grateful for all the work that you're doing with us in this community that we love and that you would continue to do so and you would change us. So Father, we thank you. We love you. Just want to pray. Amen.